Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret histories and little-known fascinating facts and figures behind your favorite TV shows, movies, music, and more. We are your two fast food junkies of fast and fun facties. <laughs> Okay, I'll take it. I'm Alex Heigl. <laughs> and I'm Jordan Runtalk. Yeah, I didn't... I, you're so much better at these than I am. To be honest, it's the part of the episode I phone in the most. Your gorditos of great facts. I'll take it. Mm, I could No, that, that's found in too. Your Mexican pizzas of minutiae. Oh, that's that good. Was okay, right we'll, we'll that, that was right there. That was right there. Well, Jordan, today we are breaking some new ground here on TMI. We've given individual foodstuffs the TMI treatment before with Oreos and the Choco Taco. And we've taken a look at the resto entertainment empire of one Charles Entertainment Cheese. But today we are casting our bloodshot and malnourished eyes in the direction of the drive through lane this week and taking a good hard look at arguably the most American franchise, fast food franchise. And I'll get to that. Uh, yeah, I understand. Taco Bell. That's right, folks. We are finally living Moss. Bong. <laughs> More than a year after premiering that joke on our Large Plane episode, <laughs> we are finally living Moss. God bless. So happy. Uh, I didn't have the soundboard app pulled up on my phone. I do believe Taco Bell is the most American um, franchise. And people would say it's McDonald's, but those people are wrong because McDonald's Despite being uh, the most nakedly atavistic and poisonous of the fast food empire, is not founded on white person theft the <laughs> same way that Taco Bell is. Nor, I would argue, does it have the history of batch innovation yeah. that Taco Bell does. And the other thing that I love about Taco Bell is that it's, it's, it's in theory, and I say this with love, it's the loser uh fast food franchise right because yeah. it's oh yeah it's perennially somewhere in third or fourth place its biggest partnership is with pepsi forever the bridesmaid oh i thought you meant it was for the i thought you were referring to the people who go there oh it is very much i was very oh, much okay. so yeah 
but but it's you know it's always the bridesmaid never the bride it's in bed with pepsi similarly <clears throat> and it's the province of late night stoners uh mm. and vegetarians <laughs> uh i mean i have a soft spot for it because growing up in central mass uh, it was kind of the most exotic restaurant in town. Right. I'm sure, and I'm sure that's not a unique you, perspective. Yeah, you are not alone, sir. Um, I wasn't really... We had a pretty good burrito place. Shout out to Nito Burrito in New Cumberland, Pennsylvania. Incredible um, name. Yeah. Uh, they had this amazing, like, massive bison head on the wall. That was like their, their like, like, arguably as big a draw as the food. I mean, this is like, <laughs> this thing must have been like, from 1850 or whatever like right before we Whoa. massacred all of them i can't it was like the size of a vw bug um so i can't argue that taco bell was my first taste of mexican food but it was my most taste of mexican food <laughs> <laughs> at least until i moved to new york uh but um i don't know is there anything else to say about taco bell <laughs> I mean, I can't emphasize enough how, I mean, I remember when this opened in my little town in Massachusetts, they were building it for, I mean, I was probably like six at the time, but it felt like years. And it was this crazy, because this was back in the early 90s when they looked like an old, like, yeah. mission. Yeah. And so it was this exotic looking building with the tiles and the, and the roof and all that. And I'll never forget. And we, my dad and I, and again, this is a small town, the day that it opened, we made a point to drive there. And this was like a 25 minute drive from my house too. <laughs> but that, and we went, and we got there and I will remember, never forget as long as I live, we got out of the car and there was no one in the parking lot. <laughs> my dad got out, peeked in the window and it wasn't open yet. <laughs> and that's when I learned about disappointment, <laughs> which is honestly a great theme for Taco Bell. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> Well, from the still-in-operation San Bernardino Mexican place that Taco Bell stole its signature recipe from, to the hilariously petty genesis of the chain's beloved Baja Blast Mountain Dew variant, to TB's curious pride of place in a Sylvester Stallone B-movie from the 1990s, here's everything you didn't know about Taco Bell. The story of every stoner's late-night salvation begins with a man named Glenn William Bell Jr. I can't believe his name was Bell. I always assumed it was just named after a mission bell or something. That's yeah, incredible. That's the best thing. It chain based he stole on it and named him after himself. Yes, yes. Ah, that's why I say it's the most American thing possible. Yeah, it really is. Bell was born on September 23, 1923 to Glenn and Ruth Bell. They moved the family from a farm in southern Oregon uh, in 1927 and then back to California in the mountains above San Bernardino in 1934. Like a lot of people, Glenn and his five siblings were pressed into the group effort to keep the family stable during the Depression. Uh, six years after this initial move, Glenn moved for the summer to Washington State to help his great-aunt Mary run her bakery, which was a formative experience for the 17-year-old, and one at the end of which they'd earned a remarkable $3,000 in, what is this, 1940 money, uh, selling pies and puffed wheat. Um, <laughs> so pies and Rice Krispies, basically? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, cool. And this was a step up from just a year before when, according to his biography, which is called something like Taco King or something. Taco insane. Titan. Taco Titan, yes. Uh, Your rap name, I believe. <laughs> he wrote that he'd gone on the bum. And ridden the rails in search of work. 
which are phrases that take on a very different meaning <laughs> in 2023. <laughs> but also s- equally lucrative. I've ridden some rails in search of work <laughs> in the New York City media. No, I never had a cocaine problem. Um, <laughs> shockingly. Uh, his family I'm, was... I'm the one who would sound like they would. Uh, maybe, a, yeah, I could see you on, like, Benny's, like, old school, like, 60s, like, radio DJ marathon. Yeah, like, eating the Vicks, like, the thing behind the inhaler that you would eat, yeah. I don't even know what you're talking about now. Oh, you know about that? Oh, that's how, that's how the Beatles used to get high before, like, everything, when they were, like, teens. When the, the old Vicks inhalers, there was Benzedrine, like, in the back, and you would, like, take it out of the back of the inhaler and, and eat shit. or, I don't know, whatever you do with that, yeah. Wow. There's some take-home news. That's some news you can use, folks. <laughs> um, In addition to getting sued by Taco Bell for this episode, can add Vicks to the list. Yeah, that's... Wow. God, they used to yeah, just put Coke in everything, right? Yeah, I mean, including Coke. Just why is Pepsi a second? Um, his family was so poor that he would bitterly recount his embarrassment when a girl at school pointed out that his shirt was made from sewn-together cement sacks. Now Bodie would sell those shirts for like seven hundred dollars. Yeah, or like uh or Yeezy. That sounds like the new yeah. like Yeezy line. Except it has a big swastika on it. Uh <laughs> Bell's early experience with both food and poverty left a big mark on him. His sister remembered to Southern California's KCET in twenty sixteen that he made some mean French fries. And his brother Merrill <laughs> told the station Glenn used to say when people were about broke with very little money, they would spend their last dime on a hamburger. I just, I'm sorry. I'm sure he made very good French fries. How hard, like, how different can you make your French fries? Well, that's my point. I mean, it's just like, and that's like poverty food. Like, what, potatoes literally grow in the dirt. Uh, disgusting garbage food. You, you cut food. them and fry them. There's, yeah. There's nothing. In oil. You can't put your own unique spend, spin on yeah, any of it. That's what's so hilarious. It's just, oh. I mean, I, but his, his hard scrabble upbringing makes me slightly charitably inclined towards him, but it's, it is really just the story of, of lowest common denominator. Uh, well, we'll get to that. Uh, Bell wound up graduating from San Bernardino High School in 1941, and he joined the Marines and served in the Pacific Theater of WWII in 1943. (laughs) Earning an honorable discharge in 1946. Apologies to our veteran listeners. According to Military.com, Bell worked in food while at war. Uh, He dealt not with just requisitioning and stocking foods, but cooking, serving it to high-ranking Army and Navy officers in the Solomon Islands, which was basically his ground-up education in how to run a food startup. I love imagining that, like, high-ranking Army and Navy <laughs> officers got first draft Taco Bell. Steamed like, that's, hands. That's incredible. Wait, what article was on military.com? <laughs> Taco Bell's, like... Because he was a Marine. Because that's the thing. It's just like... You, well, yeah, I mean, you, did they have, like, an article, like, recalling Taco Bell's early yes. days? Wow. Yes, they very much did. <laughs> You've been in digital media too long to be surprised right. by that. <laughs> right, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> So Bell came back to San Bernardino and noting the success of some other local boys selling burgers out of a little stand called McDonald's, opened his own burger joint, Bell's Burgers, in March of 1948, just four miles south of theirs on the border of San Bernardino and Colton. The New York Times in their obituary notes that this venture came after two other attempts at carving out a living, hauling adobe bricks at five cents each in a surplus army truck that he'd bought. And leasing a mini golf course. Adobe, wow, that's some uh, that's foreshadowing there. 
Well, think about how the two roads diverged in a wood could have been so different. We could have had Bell's Mini Golf Emporium instead. Wow. So the first McDonald's and the first Taco Bell-ish yeah. restaurant. That's San a, Bernardino. San Bernardino's. Yeah. Ground zero of fast food and, and heart disease. <laughs> and the, I mean, the Inland Empire, baby. Um, yeah. Bell and the McDonald's were arriving at their fast food ventures just at the dawning of the American fast food era, which grew out of the emerging Southern California car culture, particularly in San Bernardino, which was the last major city stop on America's famed Route 66. I didn't know that. I thought it ended at uh, Santa Monica Pier. You had that big sign. I guess that's major city. Si- well, now I don't know. Hold, please. No, I'm not going to look that up. Who gives yeah. a- <laughs> I, don't, I don't owe San Bernardino that. Uh, and Bell was nothing if not industrious. He sold his sister's fridge for seed money, presumably with her consent, and leased a hey, tiny- why is all the food on the floor? Yeah. <laughs> Glenn! Uh, and built this stand himself. As he wrote in his biography, I must have looked like I knew what I was doing because people who saw me work offered construction jobs and I made a few extra dollars on the side. I'm sorry, this is, this is a stupid sidebar. Uh, in high school, our friend's mom was a realtor. I think she still is. Actually, I think she listens to this show. Shout outs, Katie. Uh, and her mom, uh, Deb, had a website called debsoldmyhouse.com. And it became this running joke of like her just selling people's houses out from Deb. Oh, Deb sold my house again. Oh, it's like the Dan Smith will teach you guitar flyers <laughs> in New York. The, the guy went around uh, just putting like Dan Smith will f- you. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, that I've never seen. Oh, you didn't see those gorilla those gorilla stickers? Uh, yeah. Bell's Hamburgers opened in March of 1948, and he quickly opened another burger stand at Oak and Mount Vernon in San Bernardino. But the fast food burger market was rapidly hitting a point of oversaturation, and already looking for ways to distinguish himself, he saw how more and more white people in the L.A. sprawl were eating Mexican food and pitched the idea to his wife. She scoffed, saying that it would never go mainstream because it was too spicy, to which he retorted that he'd just toned down the heat, to which she responded, well, then Mexicans won't want it. Mm-hmm. Ah, the 40s. <laughs> it's quite a like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. <laughs> Bell's third stand opened in 1950 across the street from a Mexican place and down the street from a tortilla factory. So very centrally located. And he started frequenting his competitor and tried to figure out their secrets. This competitor was the Mitla Cafe. I think that's how you say that. A classic California Mexican restaurant founded by Vicente and Lucia... Montano in 1937, and it's still operational. That's so cool. It's the oldest Mexican restaurant in the Inland Empire, and Bell was absolutely transfixed by the lines that formed there for their signature 10-cent taco Dorados, which was a thinly fried tortilla shell lined with simple meats, shredded cheese, and diced tomatoes that bears what you've described as an alarming resemblance (laughs) to the classic Taco Bell taco. Who'd have thought? Hmm. But Mitla deserves more recognition than just being the place that yet another white guy ripped off. At the time, historian Mark Osagueda, a San Bernardino native, told the Bay Area's KALW that the city was strictly divided along racial lines, which I had no idea about. The city restricted Mexicans to living on the west side. There was school segregation. There was segregation in public theaters, in the workplace, at the Santa Fe Railroad. There were Mexican restrooms and white restrooms. I had no idea about any of this. 
Mexicans were only allowed to pool at the local Paris park one day out of the week, the day before it was to be drained and cleaned. Oh my God. Super racist. Yeah, dude, this, the I hidden no history idea. of Southern California is so hateful. <laughs> wow. And during this time, the Mitla Cafe became a meeting point for local business leaders, and buoyed by these connections, it evolved into a hub for the brand new Mexican-American Defense Committee, who actually sued the city for access to the Paris Park pool. Osagueda said that in 1944, the decision went in favor of the Mexican-American Defense Committee, and it desegregated public pools, parks, and recreation facilities for Mexican-Americans in the city of San Bernardino, a decision that served as precedent for the case that would desegregate schools in California and, in turn, served as precedent for the landmark U.S. Supreme Court decision, Brown versus Board of Education, in 1954. That's incredible. Check that out. The precedent for Taco Bell arguably has a connection to Brown v. Board of Education. Also, it's amazing that a white person ripped off the place <laughs> where Brown v. Board of Education arguably had as its seat. Yeah. Yeah. yeah America's, you're right. Really? It's, it's a hell of an American story. America's right. built on racism. Unfortunately, in a pattern that has repeated itself over and over again in minority communities across the country, a new highway that only had exits on the east side towards downtown and away from the immigrant communities on the west side was constructed in San Bernardino and began to isolate the neighborhood. It is astounding how that happens in city planning across the entire country. You see it in New Orleans. With, uh, uh, you see it in Austin. Obviously, the big, the, you know, Robert Moses and the, uh, was it Cross Bronx Expressway? Oh, man. Anyway, eventually Western exits were added, but the damage had been done. But Glenn Bell was not responsible for this. He was just a different white guy looking to steal something that he hadn't come up with himself. <laughs> While most tacos in Mexican cooking are soft shell, Cafe Mitla's tacos dorados were stuffed, toothpicked together, and then fried, creating their crispy golden exterior. And that was where Bell saw his opportunity. Instead of frying the shells to order, if he could batch fry a bunch of them in advance, he'd be able to sell exponentially more. I'll steal it and make it slightly worse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Remove that really bespoke quality to it and just make it <laughs> as anonymous as a, a car production line. Uh, so he got in contact with the local guy who made chicken coops, who built him a custom fryer basket out of chicken wire for the shells. And then all these pre-fried shells were lined up in a taco rail at the stand's counter to make them easy to fill. According to him, the only difference between his filling and the Café Mitla's was that he left out the liquid smoke flavoring. And according to another source I read, which I believe more because it speaks to his laziness, he basically used a slightly modified version of the topping that he was already using on his chili dogs. Uh, great stuff. Li liquid smoke. Oh, you've never heard of liquid smoke? No. Oh, yeah, it's a big thing in, like, uh, in barbecue and, and such. Wow, that's crazy. It's not actually liquid smoke. It's just like, it's like umami flavoring. Oh, that's a cool name for a band, though. Liquid smoke. Yeah, right? Yeah. So is this where hard shell tacos come from? I I never realized I never, no, those are corn, I guess. No, there's, I mean, there is, they, they, they have a precedent in like actual uh, Mexican food, but I, this is, they, I mean, this is arguably where they come from on the, on the mass scale. I believe there was, I was getting a little in the weeds with it, uh, and then I stopped caring. Um, so, <laughs> no, I believe is the short answer to your question. They are made, you know, they do have fried tacos in, in uh, traditional Mexican cooking. 
Um, but funnily enough, Bell didn't even invent the mass taco construction mechanism either. He was preempted by Juvencio Maldonado, a Oaxacan immigrant living in Manhattan, who created and patented a machine for the construction of multiple hard shell tacos in 1950. Bell didn't even do that either. Tremendous. Well, here's the real important question for you. You a hard shell guy or a soft shell guy? I'm a soft shell guy because the hard shells are just too crumbly, man. You know, and mm-hmm. and they cut the roof of my mouth. You know, and mm. and so I like just getting a soft shell and folding it over on itself and making it as small as possible, and then just eating it in as few bites as possible, and then housing like six of those. I'm a hard shell guy because I like hurting myself. <laughs> I was gonna say you big uh, Captain Crunch fan. You really just like those gaping wounds on the roof of your mouth. And then you have some hot pizza afterwards. Mm, yeah. It's like self-branding. <laughs> that's that's one of the more upsetting and not even funny images that I've I've put through in the series. Just a, a real a, you know, we're doing the Lord's work here. I hurt myself today <laughs> on the roof of my mouth. <laughs> As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more too much information after these messages. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. 
that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bell's Tacos arrived in December 1951, and in a moment vividly recounted in his biography, the aforementioned Taco Titan. And that, I mean, I guess what else are you going to call the founder of Taco Bell's biography? I mean, that's kind of right there. Theft. Uh, <laughs> Just Michael Mann's describes- thief. <laughs> he describes a man in a loud pinstripe suit approaching and said, give me one of those tacos. <laughs> Although the taco dripped juice onto the guy's suit, which was half the reason that Bell wanted hard shells so that they'd be hardier and neater for on-the-go eating, which is one of the reasons why I'm a hard shell guy, Bell figured that this guy in the suit would want a refund, but instead, even though he just stained his shirt, he ordered seconds. The tacos quickly became a hit, though tellingly the Mexicans who did frequent his stand avoided them, preferring to stick with burgers and hot dogs. By 1954, Bell was doing well enough that he decided to go, as you write, full Mexican (laughs) and plan to open an all-Mexican restaurant about a mile from the original McDonald's. That's, again, I can't get over. This is the ground zero for fast food in this country. The art student he hired to redress the old diner suggested the name La Tapatia, a name that sort of is a regional reference to the women of Guadalajara and the sort of stereotypically large dark eyes and flowing hair. Bell's business partner vetoed the idea as too ethnic and pushed for taco tia, a nonsense bastardization of the phrase that means taco aunt or aunt taco. Your mileage may vary. For the grand opening, Bell ordered dozens of palm leaf sombreros with the name on the brim and distributed them around town. He also hired a mariachi band and spotlights like a movie premiere i'm guessing <laughs> he he was he was whole hog for the openings actually in this era PT people talk about like they every time the new taco bell opened it was like a town-wide event i mean i i, I can speak to this i don't yeah remember. but yours didn't I, have a mariachi I, band you know it may have <laughs> i feel like there were like lots of balloons and stuff like i feel like it was a big deal in like 1992 so it's just 19 cents a taco bell created an instant success and the restaurant grossed $80,000 in its first month. That is almost... We're going to do the math on this. Are we? I failed at this. I am. <laughs> That's 95,000 tacos. Yeah, that checks out. I could easily eat a 1,000 tacos in a month. <laughs> really? What is that a day? I said that without actually thinking about it. That's like 30 tacos a day. Maybe it's 10 maybe, per meal. Maybe 500. Maybe 500. Okay. A month. All right. So, all right. So, if there were 180 you, yeah, that would that would be enough. Okay, yeah. all right. Yeah. 
Uh, two years and three taco tias later, Bell sold his interest after his business partner balked at further expansion. Coward. And he opened another fast food restaurant in Pasadena in 1957. And a year later, took on three partners in a chain called El Taco. He also helped his friend John Gallardi open the first Wiener Schnitzel, which I did not know about, but is just a German focused fast food place. Uh, regional, regional, not national. Uh, might, might be. Might be national. No, it is a. It is a. Oh my god! The logo was designed by Saul Bass, who did <laughs> all those movie posters. Yeah, yeah it's just hot dogs. Yeah, it's they mostly. Cool, they're all these old A frames. It's mostly California and Texas. Anyway, one of Bell's first employees and partners was Ed Hackbarth, who would go on to found the popular Del Taco chain. Um, El Taco. The chain was opened with some former NFL players and Bing Crosby's son Phil. So. Is that the one he beat? Almost certainly. No, no. There was one that he didn't. Oh, that's nice. Maybe he was like, okay, you, you, you're a taco titan. You, you can get away with it. <laughs> I see great things for you. <laughs> wow, dark. But by 1962, Bell had enough capital and clout to do things fully himself and found this opportunity on Firestone Boulevard in Downey, California, hometown of the Carpenters. You mentioned, you mentioned, mentioned the Carpenters on the last episode with Barbie Girl. Bell built a courtyard of open-air shops that he called Plaza Guadalajara, one of which was a small, south-of-the-border-style food stand designed by architect Robert McKay that bore the name, I need to say it in reverent tones, Taco Bell. Bong. It wasn't that reverent. I've been teased about my name since I was a kid, Glenn said. Ding Dong Bell, that sort of thing. <laughs> He's writing in his biography. This gave the name a positive ring. No pun intended. Oh, he's good. <laughs> the architect, Robert McKay, took that aspect and ran with it. He designed a California Spanish-style mission motif for the restaurant, arched, tiled, and topped with the rooftop bell, along with an outdoor seating area built around the fire pit. That's cool. Bell eventually hired McKay to be the president of Taco Bell, and he closed his architecture firm. And went, as you say, full taco. <laughs> I, I, I Here's a question. Go on. Does running an architect firm qualify you to be president of a fast food company? I mean, it's all just giving yourself raises and delegating all the actual work to, like, people below you, right? That's what every no, CEO does. True. Taco Bell at its outset only sold five items. That's incredible. Tacos, tostadas, burritos, chili burgers and a side of pinto beans. But even with this fairly limited menu, it did well enough that the first franchise was opened in 1965, with its 100th in Anaheim joining the family in 1967. That's, in two years, they opened up 100, well, 98 stores. People love tacos, man. Especially that cheap, shitty white person ones. That is bonkers. Ten years later, in 1977, there were 759 Taco Bells in 38 states. And a year later, when PepsiCo bought the chain for $125 million, there were 838. Now, I had no idea until you told me this recently that Pepsi owns Taco Bell. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how the sugar water people <laughs> bought the, the crappy white people taco place. Well, to contextualize the Pepsi purchase, we've got to do a brief digression on the cola wars. This is going to get a little in the weeds here, folks, but just bear with us. It's the TMI 
It's the TMI brand. It's interesting. I like this. In 1886, a pharmacist in Atlanta, Georgia, named John S. Pemberton, created Coke as bottled medicine. <laughs> Sounds like a euphemism for booze. I mean, it did have cocaine in it. Uh, oh. North Carolina pharmacist Caleb Bradham, a slave owner's name, if I've ever heard one, introduced <laughs> Brad's drink in 1893. <laughs> That is so. That's the most perfect name it, for Pepsi. It's, yes, exactly. It's the perfect Coke Pepsi relationship. Coca Cola, an iconic, vaguely mysterious sounding semi medicinal thing that becomes synonymous with America and its competitor, Brad's Drink. Brad. That's <laughs> <laughs> the George Carlin routine. Uh, it, be it became Pepsi from a Greek word meaning digestion in 1898. Coke had a head start. By the time Pepsi debuted, they were selling over a million gallons a year. And in a more preternatural marketing sense, Coke was also courting celebrity and athlete sponsors and already using Santa in its ad campaign. Thinking of gallons of Coke is just so gross. I just don't like measuring coke in gallons buddy you had never worked in food service you never got the big bags of the syrup i no i i was an ice cream i was an ice cream man <laughs> i'm an oil man I'm, an, I'm, I'm an ice cream man ladies and gentlemen if i tell you i'm an ice cream man you will believe me uh <laughs> <laughs> there's your there's your, your daniel playing few voices so good <laughs> if, if i say i'm a taco man you'll believe me uh, Pepsi almost went bankrupt, as a matter of fact, as a result of sugar rationing in World War II, and Coke, in a, an act of astounding pettiness, twice rejected their offer to acquire the company. As some dude put it in his viral rant from earlier this year, Pepsi's unofficial slogan for most of the 20th century was, Is Pepsi okay? Because its biggest selling point on the market was that it was cheaper for restaurants to stock than Coke. So people asking... For a Coke, we're often confronted by that question by servers. And as you pointed out, a sketch also memorialized in the uh, semi-racist uh, yeah. uh, Greek restaurant bit from early SNL. Cheaper, cheaper, yeah. no Coke, Pepsi. Yeah. yeah. So by the 1960s, realizing that it was a disgusting sugar drink fit only for the smaller <coughs> birds, Pepsi knew that it couldn't beat Coke on taste alone and decided to pivot to market dominance. Merging with Frito-Lay in 1965 in one of the biggest food and beverage mergers of the century. But the FTC slapped rules on this merger, mandating in 1968 that the newly created PepsiCo could not create advertising tie-ins between Pepsi and any of its salty snack arsenal. And crucially, and here's the rub, barring them from, quote, acquiring any snack or soft drink maker for a period of 10 years. So, naturally... They turned their eyes to fast food, where again, Coke was ahead. In 1955, Ray Kroc, who is not the McDonald's founder, but the guy who created, who turned it into the juggernaut it is today, had approached Coca-Cola about joining with him in his expansion of McDonald's, and Coke agreed. The, the two have a symbiotic relationship. As McDonald's expanded globally, it often operated out of Coca-Cola's local offices as a base of operations. Coke is also prohibited from selling its products to other restaurants for less than what McDonald's pays. And crucially, Coke product syrup is delivered to McDonald's in these enormous stainless steel tanks that make it a nightmare for the workers, uh, as opposed to plasticine bags that um, the other uh, 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 soda syrups are delivered in. You don't get soda in, in its finished form in restaurants for anyone who's never worked in restaurants. You get the concentrated syrup and then you have a seltzer line that combines them. 
um, and most fast food, uh, most most soda syrups are delivered in these gross gelatinous bags. Coke comes in these enormous uh, stainless steel containers. That is the reason when people describe McDonald's Coke and Sprite in terms like crispy and <laughs> ultra potent. That's supposedly why. So. Ten years after muscling its way into the snack market and being prohibited from expanding further in that market by the feds, Pepsi turned got a foothold in fast food. They acquired Pizza Hut in 1977 and Taco Bell in 1978. Now, next, they supposedly had their sights set on Wendy's, pursuing Wendy's for the better part of a decade, but they eventually settled on KFC to complete their unholy trifecta in 1985 when Nabisco offered them a fire sale price. Hilariously, in a move that seems Primarily motivated out of spite, when the KFC sale was announced, Wendy's responded by announcing that they were switching over to Coca-Cola. <laughs> I just, I I love all this stuff because of how apex petty all of it seems to yeah. be. Um, this unholy trio were then spun off into Yum! with an exclamation mark, Brands by PepsiCo in 1997. This was because after a decade or so, Supposedly, this whole expansion thing really failed to net them any actual market gains or help them make any inroads against Coca-Cola, so they decided to spin it off into its own thing. Now, the Yum! brand's move attained a new level of at least 2023 internet-based notoriety earlier this year when a TikToker named Alexander Perlman had a viral rant about Yum! brands and PepsiCo, essentially positing that the entire... Uh, KFC, uh, Taco Bell, Pizza Hut combination restaurant things that you see in some of the finer strip malls across this great country uh, is a ploy to save costs on real estate and operational costs, which makes sense. But that the company then parlayed all of their savings into anti-worker legislation, uh, lobbying Congress to uh, battle win- minimum wage raises, uh, hourly breaks, things of that nature. And this is broadly true. Um, according to OpenSecrets.org, which tracks lobbying costs, Yum! Brands has been putting most of its lobbying money, which for just last year was over $1.5 towards labor issues. Initially, when Open Secrets started tracking them in the late 90s, they started out evenly lobbying on taxes and the broader category of labor, antitrust, and workplace. But since then, they have shifted the majority of their money towards those issues. How's all that strike you? Hmm. See, this is what I love about whenever we tackle, and they're usually, I mean, they're always your episodes, sort of broader things. Like I remember the bikini episode had like you giving a really interesting history lesson on the rise of the suburbs and pool culture mm. and how that made bikinis uh more of a thing I, I you always take it to a very interesting very academic place that i never would expect i always i always go for the little <laughs> anecdotes the little human anecdotes but you always give these great sociological histories and i really i i always feel like i'm just listening to you give a really great lecture and i, and I mean that in a nice way <laughs> and that's the tmi promise um yes deflating all of those nice things you said the only reason i know anything about this is because of das <laughs> racist semi-immortal hit combination Pizza Hut and Taco Bell song, uh, which Jordan will punch in now. Ha! I'm at the Pizza Hut. What? I'm at the Taco Bell. What? I'm at the combination Pizza Hut and Taco Bell. I'm at the Pizza Hut. What? I'm at the Taco Bell. I'm at the combination. Pause for Das Racist. <laughs> um, so, 
That's the history of Pepsi owning Taco Bell, KFC, and Pizza Hut and combining them all into one brick-and-mortar place and also uh, lobbying Congress for the better part of two decades to f*** over the little guy. Bung! (laughs) Also around this time, we can thank Taco Bell for the first ever recall of genetically modified food. Did you know that? I, that I didn't know. No. This was in September of 2000 when up to $50 million worth of Taco Bell branded shells were recalled from supermarkets because they contained a variety of genetically modified corn called Starlink that was not approved for human consumption. They, it's not as bad as you seem. They basically just didn't know if it was going to cause allergic reactions. I just find it hilarious that we can trace the first ever recall of GMOs to Taco Bell and that it was for a product called Starlink. We are eating. You can't eat something called Starlink. That's just. <laughs> it does not, sound like like the communications device that they'd use in like a it, like we got to upload the plans for the base into Starlink. Nope. Isn't that the communication system, Elon Musk communication system that the Titan sub used? Jesus Christ, that's. I I think it was. You would know. Yeah, that's the yeah. Link it's the spacing. Sub... It's a SpaceX property. Wow, that's hilarious. Do you think it was more successful, or I guess I guess we can't blame the sub disaster on <laughs> Starlink and Elon Musk. Try as we might, <laughs> we'll get there. Give me long enough, and we'll get there. Uh, so, with all of that dry corporate intrigue and white people theft out of the way, let's get into the real eighty-eight percent meat of the episode: the food. <laughs> Rather than going through the entirety of the Taco Bell menu, which is a different podcast and one that I'm sure exists, we're going to go with two of their most beloved offerings. Starting with possibly the most bizarre one, the Mexican pizza. Mexican pizza came on to Taco Bell's proverbial scene in 1985, dubbed Pizzazz Pizza. Some sources say that it did hit some test markets under the name Mexican pizza, but in 1986, they were sued by another pizza brand called Pizzazz Pizza. I just love saying that. Yeah. An iconic commercial for Mexican pizza hit the airwaves in 1988, positing that the item was like pizza, but it's different. I was in the ad. Yeah. We're making pizza. Mexican pizza. It's like pizza, but it's different. <laughs> what a trip. Knowing all of this iconic stuff that Taco Bell is doing, like the, the Taco Bell dog, all the, these great ad campaigns. And back in 1986, they were swinging for the fences with, it's like pizza, but it's different. Uh, that commercial was notable for showing the inclusion of black olives and green onions. Which Thrillist, in their history of the food stuff, confirmed were removed in the early 90s and mid-2000s, uh, early double aughts, respectively. In 2006, uh, it was reported that green onions were being removed from all of the items on the Taco Bell menu in response to an E. coli outbreak. Great stuff. Now, go on. <laughs> Taco Bell has long been a bastion for vegetarians in the fast food world because its options can be made vegetarian simply by subbing in black beans for animal protein. In particular, the Mexican pizza has been identified as a favorite of the South Asian community, which is why when Taco Bell streamlined its menu in September 2020 and removed the Mexican pizza, a change.org petition to bring it back, which was spearheaded by a man named Krish Jagadar, obtained over 171,000 signatures. Jagadar told Thrillist, I think that the Mexican pizza and Taco Bell in particular has such a strong bond and tie with the South Asian community. It was really the only accessible fast food that a lot of Indian Americans had access to. 
Again, it was really this amazing opportunity for people like us who are vegetarian to really kind of substitute really anything on the menu and still have this really fun, tasty experience. That's a very generous description <laughs> of going to a Taco Bell. <laughs> Meanwhile, in 2021, Doja Cat, friend of the pod, Doja Cat, <laughs> tweeted that she wanted, quote, f***ing Mexican pizza back. Hilariously enough, she would later preempt Taco Bell's announcement that the pizza was returning in April 2022, when on April 17th, during her Coachella performance, she announced in the middle of a song, I brought back the Mexican pizza, by the way. <laughs> I'm trying to think of a... You couldn't how You couldn't, how mad, you libs. You couldn't mad libs this whole thing together. No. Uh, Taco Bell made their own announcement with Doja as part of the campaign the day after, and they also cited Jagadar's Change.org petition, which was very nice of them. Yeah, they threw him a little bone there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's offensive because it's vegetarian. They didn't. They threw him some black beans there. Oh, Is that worse? <laughs> Can we get the lawyers on the line? <laughs> I don't know, I feel like they have that guy, you know how Chipotle has like the, the celebrity card that comes in like an engraved wooden box that they send out to Brad Paisley or whoever the hell, and um, and it entitles you to, I think um, Jeff Tweedy of Wilco just was interviewed about it, how on Conan or something where he, or Seth Meyers or something where it entitles you to free Chipotle forever. I think that that's what, um, that's what Doja got. Done. Or Doja and the Change And Jagadar. Guy. Yeah. yeah. Both earned, like, free Taco Bell forever. Uh, the initial return of the Mexican pizza was so rapturously received that Taco Bell actually had to pull the item again after its initial return because it was experiencing supply shortages. Apparently, one customer bought 180 pizzas in one order. <laughs> the Mexican pizza then made its permanent return to the Taco Bell menu in September 2022, helped along by a Mexican pizza musical on TikTok, Performed by Dolly Parton, which, <laughs> if I didn't know you better, I would assume you made that up. <laughs> so, pivoting to the beverage segment of the menu. Ah, uh, oh, we didn't even get into the. I didn't. I didn't make time for the the cinnamon chalupas. Uh, who cares? Uh, stay on topic, Alex. Stay on topic. The chain's iconic Mountain Dew Baja Blast variant, meanwhile, came about in the 1990s. <laughs> Again, out of failure. Uh, Taco Bell saw their soda sales falling precipitously, which is one of the areas where every single restaurant typically sees an enormous margin. Uh, the company's former chief marketing officer, Greg Creed, told ComicBook.com for their astounding oral history of Baja Blast. <laughs> we tried to get to the bottom of why that was, and the answer was because a lot of young people, teenagers, young adults, their response was, well, I've got a free drink at home because mom and dad have been out to Walmart or Costco or Kroger. Which is an astoundingly price and budget conscious uh, uh, decision for the American teenager in the 1990s. Yeah. So, God, this is maybe my favorite anecdote for the entire episode. Uh, Taco Bell's response was to reach out in to Pepsi in 2002, who you remember had just spun Taco Bell out of its friendly sugary bosom in 1997 and say to them, will you please help us create a Taco Bell exclusive drink? I remember being in that meeting, Creed said. They were like, yeah, no, I don't really think so. We don't really do that, and you guys will probably only support it for like six months, and then it'll go away, and it's a lot of work. So hilariously, Taco Bell, in a presumably a, an actual light bulb moment, accompanied by the sound of the bell, 
uh, <laughs> decided that turnabout was fair play. And since they 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 thought they thought to themselves, well, we're no longer part of Pepsi. What if we switch to Coke? They played hardball with their parent company. They threatened to drop Pepsi and go with Coke at all of their locations. Uh, Dave Dave Berwick, who is PepsiCo's chief marketer from 2002 to 2005, told ComicBook.com, I can't remember the moment when we decided to partner with them, but Taco Bell were very persistent. I remember that. (laughs) Just a really nice way of saying they were playing super hardball with us. And we thought, you know what? We can justify this because Taco Bell and Mountain Dew go so well together. And Taco Bell is willing to do so much behind this that I don't think any other customer is going to be willing to do what they're going to do. Taco Bell had, hilariously, their sights set on Mountain Dew from the very beginning. The hateful beverages Code Red variant had just become a huge hit across the nation. And because all of these people should be first against the wall and under the guillotine, they decided to name and color their variant after the crystal blue waters of Mexico's Baja Peninsula, where Pepsi and Taco Bell execs took a retreat, i.e. a golf and beach and alcohol vacation, to Cabo San Lucas. That was an all-expenses-paid thing, presumably, and this was the only actual work any of these people did was just name the f***ing thing there. God, I hate business people. The drink, however, almost wasn't actually blue-flavored. It was supposed to be a straight-up lime version, but Mountain Dew was independently in the process of creating its own new variant, Live Wire, which leaned towards the citrus taste portfolio. Whatever exactly you could call the end result of Baja Blast, the results were unmistakable. It has actually increased in sales every year it's been available at Taco Bell since, I think, 2005, and the chain in Mountain Dew reach an agreement that would let them bottle and sell the drink outside of the bell during the summer months. That's how crazily successful it was. Name another product. I mean, that uh, it's nuts. One viral TikTok, though, did suggest that it's just regular Mountain Dew with a splash of blue Powerade added, uh, which is hilarious and probably true. I've never had it. Really? Yeah. I don't. I This name means nothing to me. Oh, but you're a soda boy. Oh, Baja Blast is so good. I don't, yeah, it, I don't think I've ever even... I must have heard of it somehow, but it was really when you were pitching this. You know what, bud? What's that? Treat yourself. <laughs> I don't even know what take a, a take Taco a little, Bell by me anymore. Take a little take a little Jordan moment. Taco Bell. I'm actually looking it up right now. Bushwick. Ooh, we have a Taco Bell Cantina near us in Berkeley. I didn't even cover the Taco Bell Cantina. Oh, bud, there's one at um Oh, it's one on Grand. You got a cantina near you. Right off Gates. What? I didn't know that. Anyway, the success of Baja Blast paved the way for another iconic Taco Bell collab, the Doritos Loco Taco, which ports the classic TB taco to a shell dusted with the iconic nacho cheese Doritos dust, which earned Taco Bell $1 billion in its first year on the market. Those things are good as hell, though. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Creed told comicbook.com, I'm convinced if we had not made Baja Blast, there would be no Doritos Locos Tacos, because it's one thing to let us play with Mountain Dew. It's another thing to let us play with Doritos. Hell of a quote. (laughs) You will remember that uh, Doritos is a Frito-Lay product on merger Pepsi, so Uh, they would add Cool Ranch flavored tacos uh, later. That sounds, I don't like that. It doesn't sound good. It isn't as good as the nacho cheese flavored one, because ranch is a is sort of a strange bedfellow with... Um, yeah. 
Yeah. Although I guess it kind of has the sour cream. Yeah, you got vibe, that zest to it. I don't know. I'm more which I don't yeah, like, more... but I understand that it goes <laughs> well with. I mean, that's the thing with me with Mexican food. I don't like cheese. I don't like sour cream. I don't like. Yeah, I don't really like spice that much. How can I get some ba- a case of Baja Blast sent to you? You must be able to. You have to. Oh, I very much can. Yeah. Oh, but six seventy eight from Walmart. I can pay six seventy eight for a twelve pack. What is shipping? Shipping's gonna be like what? Twelve dollars. Ah, we're killing the planet for this. <laughs> I can get this shipped right to you. Oh, oh, pickup is free. Pickup is free. If any Sorry. fans want to send Heigl a case of Baja Blast, <laughs> I know it'll make them because I haven't been paying them lately. So, <laughs> kind of make it. This worth episode earned somehow. me a twelve pack of Baja Blast. We're gonna take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more. Too much information in just a moment. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. 
Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, closing in on the end here. Yes, as we move from the real world to the realer world, (laughs) the world of advertising and cinema. Yes, for fans of Taco Bell and pop culture, the 90s were a glorious time for two reasons. 1993's Demolition Man starring Sylvester Stallone and a chihuahua named Gidget. Heigl, (laughs) you got to tell us about Demolition Man. I can't take this from you. Oh, Demolition Man is a classic. Uh, I feel like it was one of those movies that was just... perennially on like tbs and usa and i like i watched this a lot like with con air on mm. uh on cable as a kid it is a broadly speaking is a dystopian action film in which stallone plays a super cop who framed for a crime he didn't commit or something is cryogenically frozen and thawed out in a future southern california in which liberalism and political correctness as viewed by dennis leary who has a prominent role as a rebel leader has become the rule of authoritarian law. You can't swear in public. You're fined instantly. Um, you know, uh, uh, like smoking is outlawed. It's it's this whole vision. It's actually become kind of insanely uh, 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 prescient. Con- uh, prescient, yeah, because not only is it like one long joke of what like right-wingers actually think the country currently is, but, um, you know, it's got all this stuff about like, like it takes place in, what do they call it? They call it like, San Barbangelis or something because an earthquake has fused the major Southern California metropolises of Santa Barbara, LA, and and, uh, Santa Cruz or something like that. Um, Wesley Snipes plays the villain in a role slated for Jackie Chan, actually. And boy, does Wesley Snipes in the parlance of Twitter make a meal out of it. It is one of my favorite roles. He is a gleefully cackling lunatic with dyed blonde hair uh, who spends most of the movie in suspenders karate kicking people. It rules. Anyway, uh, Sandra Bullock, America's sweetheart, non-Julie Roberts category, uh, (laughs) plays Stallone's love interest cop partner, and she takes him out for a fancy dinner in a scene that has outlasted most of the rest of the film to a Taco Bell. Which, as she explains in a throwaway line, is the only restaurant left standing in the country after the franchise wars. Just amazing writing, top to bottom. So how did Taco Bell end up with this pride of place? Well, because everyone else said no. (laughs) Other chains wouldn't do a tie-in with an R-rated movie. Jonathan Uh Lemkin, an uncredited writer on the film, told Entertainment Weekly at the time, The demographics of our most frequent customers, males 18 to 34... Match the film's audience, added Taco Bell company spokeswoman Janice Smith. Meanwhile, Eric Dahlquist, president of the Vista Group, which helped General Motors plant their futuristic cars in the movie, added to Entertainment Weekly. What's unusual about Demolition Man is that these arrangements were set up when the script was first in review. Just an early trailblazer in corporate product placement. According to an Adweek write-up from the time, 
General Motors and Taco Bell burned through 15 million combined in media spends to help promote the film. Ah, America. Another of the film's writers, Daniel Waters, confirmed all that to Vulture in 2020. I am a Taco Bell person, he said. We have great Mexican food out here in L.A. People were like, oh, Taco Bell is not real Mexican food. I'm going, yes, we know. Much like Demolition Man, it's its own genre. That's a pull quote for the ages. <laughs> Waters continued, to be quite honest, my original draft was Burger King, and then Burger King scoffed, and McDonald's scoffed. When Taco Bell came around, it's like, of course, Taco Bell. The greatest thing that's ever happened to this movie. <laughs> Taco Bell would notch another victory over its hated San Bernardino rival in 2009 when they replaced McDonald's as fast food sponsor of the NBA, toppling Mickey D's 20-year reign. That's just an aside. But only a portion of Demolition Man's assuredly international audience may even understand that reference, because for the European version of the film, Taco Bell was dubbed and also animated over all of the branding, all of the signage, etc., with Pizza Hut because executives feared that the former wasn't quite as international at the time. But Taco Bell isn't bitter. To celebrate Demolition Man's 25th anniversary, the upscale Taco Bell from the film's U.S. version was recreated with a pop-up location in San Diego during Comic-Con in 2018. Guests received a free four-course meal served by wait staff dressed in the uniforms from the film. Ah, sometimes I really do love this country. That is a really cool-looking Taco Bell, I do have to say. Hell yeah, brother. <laughs> Jordan, why don't you sidebar us into Taco Bell's genius run of ads in the 90s? I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> Taco Bell, it must be said, has had some pretty amazing ad campaigns and marketing spends. I vividly remember when they helped Willie Nelson out of his IRS tax hole in the early 90s by commissioning a song called The Woman with the Rose Tattoo. Which introduced both the Steaks Burrito Supreme. I can't even say it in a straight face. Steak Burrito Supreme and Zesty Steak Melt. How did he incorporate that into the lyrics? I don't. Do you want me to pull up the lyrics? Yes, I do. <laughs> uh, I want you to recite them as Willie Nelson. Well, let's just punch it in. Poor Willie. I mean, he must have just been too stoned to give it. Also, you know, well, the too government. Broke. Yeah, and the government was literally about to sell all of his possessions. Sorry. He got off the bus at the border, went up, drove the woman with the rose tattoo. She offered him a ride, and when he got inside, she offered him something new. A steak burrito supreme from Taco Bell, she insisted that he try it. And a new zesty steak melt from Taco Bell, he had never had nothing like it. And when he tries the steak soft taco... Oh, he got both of them in there. God, what a... Because he's a, a professional. Because Exactly. <laughs> Poor Willie. Yeah. That man's been through a lot. <laughs> and I, I, I have to imagine this was related. Taco Bell also threw a $20,000 check to Farm Aid, the charity foundation that Willie dreamt up during the recording of We Are the World, I believe. Mm -hmm. uh, I, oh, this was to help sweeten the deal and convince him to throw away all of his cultural cachet <laughs> to write a song for Taco Bell. Okay, so they dangled not only a do you not want to go to tax prison over him, <laughs> but they also dangled the $20,000 check to his charity over him to make him do that. Okay. Uh, they also used Johnny Cash's Ring of Fire around the same time, uh, which was two years before Johnny Cash's late period Rick Rubin-assisted renaissance. So they were really, uh, they were early adopters to the, <laughs> the late era Cash. 
few years later, in 1996, Taco Bell took out a full-page advertisement in seven leading U.S. newspapers announcing that the company had purchased the Liberty Bell to, quote, reduce the country's debt. And they renamed it the Taco Liberty Bell, of course. <laughs> this naturally spurned thousands of calls to Taco Bell headquarters, angry calls, I should say, uh, before it was revealed at noon on April 1st <laughs> that the story was a prank. <sighs> Corporate April Fool's Day pranks. I don't know. Can be grown worthy. That one's not bad, though, I guess. I mean, they were better before social media. Yeah, you know? that's true. Because well, you had to go bigger. Otherwise, no one would hear it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this I actually vividly remember. In 2001, Taco Bell launched the campaign time to the re-entry of the Mir Space Station, where they towed a massive floating target into the Pacific Ocean and announced that if the target was hit by falling debris from Mir, every person in the United States would be entitled to a free taco. It was great. It was just like an inflatable bullseye. The company bought a sizable insurance policy for this gamble, but sadly, for the citizenry of this world, it did not pay off, and we didn't all get a free taco. Hmm, sad. They've also run a similar promotional campaign during various World Series, which pays off if any player in the series steals a base. That seems... I'm kind of surprised that one hasn't paid out yet. That kind of seems it like has. something that, I oh, think it, it has, has paid out. Yeah, oh, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Twice, uh, 2005 and I think 2022, actually. Are you just pulling that off the top of your head? I mean, you could easily be making that up, and I have no idea, but... No, I... I, I... I just didn't put it in the write-up, but I saw it earlier. <laughs> uh, one campaign that didn't work out was in 2009, when they put out a campaign asking rapper 50 Cent to change his name to 79 Cent, 89 Cent, or 99 Cent to promote its menu items that cost less than a dollar. Fitty, though, I can say that, right? I mean, Oof. I can't, but people can. Okay, 50 can. said that. That's some, 50 sounds worse, though. That sounds even more... <laughs> it does sound somehow worse. Yeah. <laughs> the rapper, though, said he wasn't contacted until the campaign went wide, and he promptly sued them for $4 million in damages, alleging that Taco Bell had exploited his name. The suit was settled. Out of court. <laughs> Out of court. Uh, one of these ad campaigns supposedly backfired i don't actually remember well of course i didn't remember this i wasn't reading <laughs> newspapers in february of 2011 uh taco bell spent over three million uh running full page ads that read thank you for suing us in major newspapers and on social media after a consumer protection lawsuit filed against the company by an alabama law firm alleged that the company falsely advertised the ratio of ingredients in its beef filling um the advertising suit was filed in California in January of 2011, alleged that the filling didn't have enough beef to be called that, uh, suggesting that the meat mixture did not meet federal requirements to be labeled beef. Taco Bell says its taco filling contains 88% USDA inspected beef, and the rest <laughs> is water, spices, and a mixture of oats, starch, and other ingredients that contribute to what the chain calls the quality of its product. Ooh, I don't like that. It says it uses no extenders to add volume to the filling. So this suit was actually withdrawn, and then Taco Bell, in another example of Apex Petty, continued to spend ad money to place ads that publicly requested an apology from the law firm that sued them. They're all these ads that say, like, would it kill you to say sorry? It is the most... <laughs> 
passive aggressive thing. I just that's the cult corporate co- conversation that I would want to be in on. Yeah, guys, uh, below the line ad costs are like, I don't know. You want two million to just f- with this law firm? Yes. <laughs> all right, rubber stamp it. Uh, this has all been a preamble, though, to the ad campaign that gripped America for a wild full years in the pre Y two K highs. The Taco Bell dog. Gidget, as was her Christian name, proclaimed Yo Quiero Taco Bell in a voice provided by Reno 911 actor Carlos Alaz... God, I can't. This is going to defeat me. Alazraki? Alazraki? Carlos from Reno 911. I'm so sorry. Friend of the pod. (laughs) He took influence for that voice from Peter Lorre and Ren from Ren and Stimpy who is also a Chihuahua, who is also doing a Peter Lorre impression, which is incredible. I'm kind of shocked that that didn't result in some kind of copyright Intellectual, infringement yeah. from Nickelodeon. They didn't want to bring John Kay back into the spotlight. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, the campaign, which was originally just slated for one installment, became massively popular with its auxiliary catchphrase, Drop the Chalupa, briefly becoming a hit phrase on SportsCenter. One of its most famous crossovers came from the ill-fated 1998 Godzilla remake in which the dog tried to trap Godzilla with the classic cardboard-on-a-string setup with the phrase, here, lizard, 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 something my mom still laughs at and, in fact, bought me a t-shirt for when this campaign hit the airwaves. Because I love Godzilla, you see. I know, yeah, that's actually why I let you read this section. I know. <laughs> Unless you lived through it, it's really hard to convey how insane this campaign was. Like... People were stealing these this, the promotional materials that featured Gidget out of restaurants. Um, the merch for it flooded like dashboards and and carnivals the nation across the nation. You remember? I'm not exaggerating, right? You remember yeah. how oh, big yeah. this thing oh, was? Oh, it was insane. Uh, waxing on the campaign success, Clay Williams, the copywriter on the account, told the New York Times in 1998, "We don't treat the dog as a dog. We treat him as a 19 year old trapped in a dog's body." He's a cool character that happens to be a dog. <laughs> Grim. It's the Dell guy in a, a dog's body. <laughs> yes, basically. Uh, dude, you're getting a taco. <laughs> Some Latin American advocacy groups uh, decried Taco Bell, accusing them of trafficking in cultural stereotypes, which was an accusation that was hard to duck, uh, particularly over ads that depicted the dog as a bandito with uh, pistols and a sombrero. Or cosplaying as a revolutionary wearing a beret that was suspiciously similar to that of Che Guevara, who was Argentinian. <laughs> but the good times couldn't last. In July of 2000, Taco Bell ended the ads, severed its relationship with the creator, TBWA, and replaced their own president after a historic drop in revenue in the second quarter of 2000. For a while, there were urban legends that Taco Bell ended the commercials because of the dog, Gidget, who died... But voice actor Tom Kenny, who is a, believe, uh, Futurama actor, among many other things, who's a friend of the voice of Gidget, Carlos, uh, said that it was the lobbying by the Hispanic advocacy groups that ended the campaign. Oh, SpongeBob. He's the voice of SpongeBob, Tom Kenny. Oh, I should have gone with that first. Uh, three years later, Taco Bell lost a lawsuit filed against them by two Michigan men who claimed they had pitched the concept of the Chihuahua campaign to Taco Bell in 1996 and subsequently worked with them for over a year developing a campaign and commercials under the working name Psycho Chihuahua. Another good band name, that and Liquid Smoke. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, They were awarded 
$30 million in initial compensation, plus nearly $12 million in additional interest. And hilariously, Taco Bell in turn sued TWA, claiming that they, not Taco Bell, should have been aware of this conflict. They also lost that suit. TWA? Like the... Oh, the ad, the ad, people, the ad the company. TBWA. Yeah. TBWA, yeah, yeah, yeah. sorry. Well, Gidget, the dog in the commercials, was, much like Spuds McKenzie in the Bud Light ads years earlier, a... I can't bring myself to say this. I will say a lady dog playing a male dog. <laughs> she was found at a kennel and wasn't show quality due to her undershot jaw and oversized ears. Karen McElladin, the owner of Studio Animal Services, who in turn owned the dog, told the Associated Press that Gidget died in 2009 at the age of 15. She made the most of her celebrity, opening the New York Stock Exchange. <laughs> <laughs> Of all the things they could have had the Taco Bell dog do. Uh, and appearing at Madison Square Garden. As what? <laughs> Herself? Oh, okay. Let me rephrase that. I mean, was it part of like... <laughs> Chihuahuas are not a dispositionally inclined dog for all this, too. So No, I know. That poor yeah. creature. Uh, she also appeared in a 2002 crossover commercial for Geico as Bruiser's mom in the 2003 movie Legally Blonde 2, Red, White, and Blonde. That's medium funny <laughs> Gidget outlived Glenn Bell the creator of Taco Bell who died in 2010 at the age of 86 <laughs> yeah, you, you take this he was proud of his legacy of theft <laughs> telling the trade publication Nation's Restaurant News in 2008 that I always smile when I hear people say that they never had a taco until Taco Bell came to town <laughs> is that wrong? Is that so wrong of me to tar and feather him as a as a thief? Um, but if you want to visit the original icon that naked Caucasian theft built, you can always make a pilgrimage to Irvine, California, where the actual, literal, original brick-and-mortar Taco Bell is enshrined at corporate headquarters. It had ceased to be an actual Taco Bell since 1986, but continued to house, in its original spirit, various taquerias for the intervening decades. It had stood vacant, though, since December of 2014, so just under a year later, in November of 2015, in a nighttime ceremony witnessed by a few faithful fans and escorted by some police cars, Taco Bell uprooted the entire structure and drove it 45 miles east to corporate headquarters. If you're dedicated enough, you can simply drive around back and see if it's still there, visible to the naked eye, the headquarters' rear parking lot is unguarded, according to Atlas Obscura, though it is technically private property, so be careful. But it is supposedly still just parked out there, occasionally covered with a tarp, in case of inclement weather. And, hey, from there, you can make it up to the Mitla Cafe, home of the original Taco Dorado, in just under an hour. <laughs> Folks, thank you for listening. This has been Too Much Information. I'm Alex Heigl. And I'm Jordan Runtug. We'll catch you next time. Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtug. The show's supervising producer is Michael Alder June. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 
Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV... This is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.